may now consider together as we shall be enabled words you will find in the chapter we read together. The first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, the first chapter. And we shall read again from verse 3. First Corinthians, the first chapter, from the third verse. Grace be unto you, and peace, from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf, for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance, and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, and so on. Especially the fourth verse. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. This is written to the church at Corinth. <clears throat> that there was a church at Corinth was in itself an outstanding testimony to the efficacy of the grace of God. As you know, Corinth was notoriously wicked. <clears throat> Idolatry and immorality abounded. And so deep-rooted were those vices and of such long continuance that judged by any standard that man could apply, there couldn't be a church at Corinth at all. But the standards of men <clears throat> break down when confronted with the grace of God. Paul came to Corinth preaching the gospel of God. And that gospel, when accompanied by the Spirit, was sufficiently powerful to break down the strongholds of idolatry and vice. And while there was much to be desired, Still, in the church at Corinth, while there were many irregularities, yet the apostle addresses them as the saints at Corinth, the church of God, 
at Corinth, the saints, those who went caught of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and it is this, to this church he writes, after he had been informed of uh, some of the irregularities uh, that prevailed there. But in full possession of those facts, and this is noteworthy, in full possession of those facts, he doesn't hesitate, notwithstanding, to address them as the Church of God, the sanctified in Christ Jesus, those called to be saints. Which is itself <clears throat> a conclusive proof, an unanswerable argument that the grace of God can exist and does exist. When there is much weakness, much lack of conformity to God's standard, and this is true both individually and collectively. Shall we say that the Apostle viewed the church at Corinth? Not merely as what it was, but that he viewed it especially as what it was capable of becoming by the grace of God. The grace that had called the church into being there was sufficient to perfect that church so that it would be presented before God without spot or blemish or any such thing. Now he says, I thank my God. And of course he did what he said he did. He thanked God. We might pause for a little <clears throat> to ask ourselves this question. What does this mean? What does it imply to thank God? Like everything else, <clears throat> when we look at it on the surface, we think we know what it means. But then if and when we try to analyze it, it doesn't seem quite as easy to define it as it appears on the surface. I thank God. Now of course this is a high achievement. 
in the life of grace, in the life of faith. It is but a truism to say that no one really thanks God but on account of his grace. And that therefore no one really thanks God but such as possess that grace. Perhaps from one point of view at least, this is the highest exercise to which the spirit of man can rise, to thank God. I thank God. But there is nothing higher, because there are two things included in it. At least two things that justify us in referring to it and describing it as a high exercise of grace. First of all, there is this, the recognition that all good and perfect gifts um, from God. There is this, this knowledge of the bounty of God. This knowledge of the kindness of God, of the compassion of God, of the goodness of God. But secondly, there is also the recognition that man has no claim on this bounty. That he cannot put in a plea on the grounds of anything that is in himself or that can be in himself. And only those, thank God, who are convinced and who do recognize that all good things are from God and that they themselves are unworthy of the least of it. Now brought into this secret place of the Most High, taught in the inner sanctuary, where both God's goodness and man's demerit are seen in their clear, clearest light, there and there only, intelligent thanks is rendered to God. There and there only can it be said, I thank God. I thank God. Blessed is the man who thanks God. 
Blessed is he who recognizes his indebtedness to the Most High, who in all humility of spirit can say, Blessed be God who has blessed us. I thank God. But the apostle goes on further to say that he thanks God for the grace that was given unto the Corinthian church. For the grace of God which is given you. I thank God for the grace of God which is given you. It is fitting, it is right, that we should thank God for his goodness to ourselves personally. But where the spirit of true gratitude is, there is a wider field than that covered by it. It is not that I should thank God for his goodness to myself only, but also to thank him for his goodness to others, for his grace bestowed upon his people, his grace given unto them. For his grace given to you. Now there is a sense <clears throat> in which uh, this thanksgiving had special reference to the apostle himself. For it was at least partly through his instrumentality that this church was planted at Corinth. So that there was that tender and close bond between the Apostle and the Corinthian church. But we are not to confine his thanksgiving to this. He certainly gave thanks to God for the success of the word preached by himself and by Sosthenes, by Apollos, by Cephas, by all the apostles, by all the teachers who taught this. But there is also what we read of in the epistle to the Romans that when one member of the body is honored, then all rejoice with it. As when one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. 
let all rejoice in the grace of God given to these men and women. He rejoiced in it as a member in the body of Christ, rejoicing on account of the honor bestowed on other members of that same body. Perhaps this is the test of our gratitude. Whether it is on account of the grace of God or on account of our own comfort. And there's a mighty difference there. The test is this, whether we rejoice in that grace when bestowed on others. And going a step further, whether we rejoice in the, in the grace bestowed on others, when we know, at least when we think we know, that their grace exceeds our own, or to put it another way, when according to our thinking, they are more highly honored than we are ourselves. To rejoice in the grace of God bestowed upon the members of Christ's body. To rejoice in it, wherever it is bestowed, on whomsoever it is bestowed, to whomsoever it is given, and to rejoice in it as the grace of God. There is an instinct in human nature. <clears throat> To show sympathy to those whom we think are less um, fortunate than ourselves, there is a, um, an instinct in human nature to this effect. That is, it is, at least to a degree, it is natural for men and women to weep with them that weep. It is also natural, to a degree, to rejoice with them that do rejoice. And in the sense in which we speak just now, this is but the expression of our gregarious instinct, of our herd instinct. We like to do what the others are doing. We like to follow the crowd whether they wait or whether they rejoice. There is definitely something in human nature that inclines 
men and women in that direction. That's no sign of grace. But when the apostle says, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep, he raises it above the natural instinct. He asks them to do this because they are members one of another. To do it not merely as the expression of a natural instinct, but to do it as being closely bound with their fellow believers. Well, that is true. <clears throat> we have to recognize this fact. That it is not natural for man to rejoice at those who are promoted at one's own expense. It is not natural for man to rejoice then. It is not natural for him to rejoice in his neighbor's well-being disinterestedly. He can do it up to a point, but only up to a point. And it is then that the grace of God shows what it is. I thank God for the grace given unto you. He doesn't say, I thank God for you. Certainly he had he had that at heart. But that is not the order in which he puts it. He sees first the grace of God, and then he sees them. He doesn't see them first, and then the grace of God. And I tell you, there's a mighty distinction there. And this is the only way in which one can disinterestedly rejoice in the good of his fellow being, of his fellow believer, up to any point. To view man in the light of grace, not grace in the light of man. He sees God's grace, and this is precious, this is glorious in his eyes, all the time. No, he follows that grace, let us say. And this grace is bestowed upon a person here, a person there, and so on. Now he rejoices in that grace of God given unto them. 
And notice again, it is in grace he rejoices. What is this? Grace. Grace. Nothing but grace. While he is sent into the world to declare this grace of God. That was his work primarily as a preacher of the gospel. To declare the grace of God to all who would hear. He proclaimed this far and wide. He was ready to preach it at all times. Inasmuch as in me lies, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. At Rome and everywhere else. Starting from Jerusalem. He was ready to preach it. This grace of God. No God's grace. is something for which the world never looked. And furthermore, it is something which the world can never understand. The grace of God. It is something which is beyond the comprehension of man's mind. In the following chapter in the same epistle you see how the Apostle brings that out. He states categorically that the natural man understandeth not the things of the Spirit of God. And what things are these? Well, in a word, they are the grace of God. Man doesn't understand the grace of God. He stumbles at it every time. It is a stumbling block. It is a rock of offense. And this grace of God, of course, is in Christ. And it can truly be said, it is Christ. But no, man cannot understand the grace of God. And the grace of God in our word is this, that God gives something for nothing. That God gives everything for nothing. That is, for no payment on the part of man. For no work on the part of man. It is that which God gives freely, without any respect to the worthiness, the deservedness of those to whom it is given. It is not given to people because they deserve it, because they are worthy of it, because they have worked for it. And it is precisely at that point that the grace of God becomes 
a stumbling block. Man cannot understand it. He refuses to believe it. So every time he comes with gifts and sacrifices provided by himself. He likes to buy of God. He likes to do his part. He likes to give what is his own. The law of his mind is a fair exchange. He may not and does not go according to that law, but that's the law of his conscience. A fair exchange. If I will do this, God will do that. If I will give this, God will give that. That's the law of his conscience. Now that is not grace. That is the very antithesis of grace. And here we repeat man stumbles every time. Stumbles in all his endeavors to do business with God. God talks grace. Man talks works. God says, freely I give. Man replies, a fair exchange is what I know. And this is part of the offense of the gospel. That it is free without money and without price. In other words, that it is grace and nothing but grace. Now perhaps the last stronghold in which man takes shelter is the one of faith regarding the grace of God. He argues like this. I quite believe that um, at least he thinks he believes that man is justified without the works of the law. But then he takes refuge in this with his own ideas. He takes refuge in faith. He says and tries to act on this principle. I will believe and then God will give me grace. Or I will be saved. For whichever form you care to put it. This is his last resort. I will believe. And of course in saying that and in acting on that principle, he is still acting on the principle of a fair exchange. In other words, he is still under the law.
He is acting under the law. He doesn't know grace. He tries in the last analysis to, to buy the grace of God with his own faith. And that is all the gospel that thousands know who profess the name of Christ. They don't know any other gospel. They don't know any other grace. The only grace they know is the one they bought by their own faith. And that's no grace. None at all. That man is still in the bond of iniquity and in the gall of bitterness. He is still bound hand and foot by the spirit of the law, although he calls it faith and calls it grace. It is still law and nothing but law. I will believe, then he believes, and then he takes to himself, in this spirit of bondage and legality, he takes to himself what doesn't belong to him. He stretches forth unholy hands to the promises of God and applies them to himself, and that is what he is told to do. That is the teaching he receives, a teaching which he can lap up like water because his nature is in that direction already. He is biased in that way. But this is grace. <clears throat> Something entirely different. Basically, fundamentally different from what man can achieve by any doing of his own, including his faith. It is something that God gives freely. It is something to which God attaches no conditions. No conditions whatsoever. All God says is, take, take freely, take without money and without price, take to your heart's content. You see, with no conditions, absolutely no conditions. The only condition, and that cannot be a condition, is that you take, that you receive, that you accept, whichever word you prefer, that you receive freely, without any conditions. And then, unto those who receive the grace of God makes its own conditions. That is, it works inevitably according to its own nature. He have received this grace. The grace of God given. Something given freely, but also received, of course. 
And it is the grace of God that makes way for its own reception. It is not something like this, now I am ready to receive the grace of God. Nobody is ready to receive the grace of God. It is the grace of God that makes one ready for receiving grace. It is the grace of God that makes room for itself in the heart of man. It is given. And it is given so as to surmount every barrier, to overcome every difficulty, to surmount every obstacle. That's the nature of the grace of God. It is not something for which one can be prepared beforehand. It is something that brings with it its own preparation. Now, he says, I thank God for this grace. And well did the apostle knew, well did he know, that no other grace could have worked at Corinth. And incidentally, that no other grace could have worked anywhere else. The grace of God given to you. Given. Freely and fully, and that grace given made way for its own reception. And that grace planted a church in Corinth called men out from the worst of vices and made them saints of God made them the called of Jesus Christ the church of God and God I thank God for this grace the grace that accomplished this. And this is the only grace that will work anywhere at any time. The grace of God. And this grace will work. It is always the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't matter where. Put it into the worst places imaginable. The darkest dungeons of, of vice that ever existed. But this grace of God given and received will work according to its own nature and nothing in the universe can prevent it. And surely this is the grace that we will do for, for us individually. The grace of God given. I thank God for it. As if the apostle said, I thank God for it on my own account and on your account. I thank God that this is the grace which he gives. I thank God that it works, that it is not only mighty, but almighty. 
and this is the grace that will perfect you. This is the grace by which you shall be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I thank God for the grace of God given unto you. How? By Christ Jesus. There is no grace apart from Jesus. It is the grace which is in him. The grace which resides in him. For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness, including the fullness of grace, should dwell. It is the grace of God by Christ Jesus. So that in Christ this grace is personified. He wasn't referring to something in the abstract. He is referring to the grace of God by Christ Jesus. The grace. We beheld his glory. Full of grace. A glory full of grace. We beheld his glory full of grace. would be equally true to say we beheld his grace full of glory we received his grace full of glory full of grace and truth may this be our position and condition that the grace of God be given us and may God in his mercy so work in us as that we shall walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called in the gospel of God's grace that we might from the heart for ourselves and for one another may give thanks to God for the grace given unto us by Christ Jesus let us pray O Lord bless us bless us with thy grace And we would bless thee that there is grace. And for the nature of the grace there is. May our hope and confidence rest entirely in thee because of thy grace through Christ Jesus. The Lord is gracious and he is full of compassion. Lift upon us the light of thy countenance and take away our sins for Christ's sake. Amen.